Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. I am very sad to report that Harvard Westlake has lost a great friend and a great teacher, Ted Walsh, who succumbed to cancer on Thursday, September 8th, 2022. In remembering Ted, I wanted to repost our conversation, which was recorded on February 14th, 2020, just a month before the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Why this is somewhat relevant is that two weeks before Ted's death, I was scheduled to visit Ted at his home. But that morning, for the first time, he tested positive for COVID-19. Thankfully, Ted was asymptomatic, so I still decided to go. I just really wanted to be with him in person. And so I wore my KN95 mask and expected to find myself in an anxious and relatively empty apartment. It was anything but. There was not only a hospice nurse, but two unpaid friends slash caretakers who've basically been with Ted 24-7. Two former Branson students whom Ted taught 30 years ago. A former Harvard-Westlake student helping Ted to finish his novel. Another alum dropping off chili, which Ted couldn't wait to devour. Ted was surrounded. And while I am not one to typically advocate for unsafe COVID-19 practices, of course, I was so deeply moved by the community of overwhelmingly generous support and love that Ted's life continues to inspire. Ted did not leave us alone. Ted Walsh, welcome to the supporting cast. Thanks. Good to be here. <laughs> so to start off, how many years is it now that you've been teaching? Oh, teaching altogether? Teaching altogether. 54. 54 years. Yes. What do you love about teaching? What is it that keeps oh, you boy, that's a great question. coming back 54 years it, later? It took me 10 years to figure out that I even like teaching at all. I, I did it and I, I guess I enjoyed it when I first started but I always thought I was going to be a Broadway director huh. of theater. Yeah. And that's what I had my degrees in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth and so on. And then after about 10 years, some things happened, and it took a long time to realize that what I really loved was teaching. And I think the thing I love most about it is that if you teach smart kids, yeah. they will demand the best of you. And if they demand the best of you, it means you have to show up each day alert, uh, prepared, preferably with something new to offer. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's exciting. It's and, mo ex and motivating. Right? And motivating. Yeah. It's exciting to wake up in the morning and go to work. Yeah. I mean, I am 78 years old, so I'm still doing this. They still let me do it. Uh, <laughs> and my, no, no plans to retire as far as none, I know. None. Uh, I figure two things. All my courses are elective, so if kids stop signing up for them, that'll be an indication that it's time to hang it up. And I assume that the people in charge 
will also let me know if they see signs that I miss that, that I'm losing my edge. Right. And, and I've made that very clear to the good people who employ me that I won't, I won't take it amiss if they let me know, hey, Ted, thanks. Good job. Time to go. Got it. But okay. it, that, that hasn't happened yet. Hasn't happened yet. Um, and you're also teaching on the weekends. You're doing a Well, I don't teach Sundays on the weekend. Ted. I do a thing. Well, it used to be called Sundays with Ted, but I made, it, I made them stop that because that's based on the title Tuesdays with Maury. <laughs> okay. And Maury dies at the end of the book. So I thought well, we have to get rid of that title. The idea about it's now called Cinema Sundays. Yeah, got it. And the idea behind Cinema Sundays is something that the school – and I offer freely to the wider community. It's open to anyone who wants to come. You arrive at 3 o'clock on a Sunday. There are 14 of them during the year. Uh, You see a film, and then we have a discussion about that film. Sometimes I'll have a guest. Sometimes I won't. Sometimes the guest is an alum. Sometimes the guest is a is a big deal, like I had Alejandro and Yardi too right. talking about Birdman. I had Spike Jones talking about her, yeah. uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it, 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 it's a very exciting time for me. I love giving this to the community, and, and many of my favorite regulars have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with Harvard-Westlake School. Hmm. So. so you mentioned people, folks like Inuritu or Spike Jones yeah. and – and those aren't alumni of Harvard-Westlake, but there are several alumni of Harvard-Westlake who've gone on to be award-winning performers. And, and the attitude, let's remember, is a parent, That's a former true. parent. So. Former parent at the right. school. And a very close friend of the school's. Yes. And he's spoken at Westflix, the film festival. He has. And been a, a my great fa- My favorite story about Inyarty too and Westflix is we had scheduled him several years ago. I can't remember exactly how many, maybe yes. eight. And he called me the day before as he was coming out of anesthesia to say, Ted, I, I, I have had the emergency appendectomy, <laughs> and I, but I will be there tomorrow night. And I said, no, you won't. You can't, you can't do that. And then his, I heard his wife in the background going, Ted's right. Yeah. Uh, in any event, he got us Guillermo del Toro to right. replace him, which wasn't a bad deal. No. But then Alejandro honored that commitment a year later and was our principal guest. And we've had Tom Hanks, and we've had, this year we're having, we just announced it, and it's pretty exciting. Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman. That's exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. Right. Um, But some of these folks who've been uh, students of yours have gone on to great acclaim. And many haven't, and and credit you just the same. But the ones that come to mind are the Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal, Ben Platt, uh, Beanie Feldstein, uh, Fran Kranz, Jason Siegel. There's there's a long list who credit you in part with inspiring them. I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling a story or two about any of those folks sure. when you I, first realized mm, there, there's something that, that this 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 young woman or young man may have a future. Right. I, I'd like to begin by saying that when you spot talent like all of the persons you just mentioned, yeah. your job as a teacher is in large part to get out of the way, hmm. not, not to – and it's sweet that many of them do give me credit, but honest to God, and I'm not being falsely humble – they, they give me more credit than I deserve. Hmm. Uh, I simply gave them room and the possibility to find out just how rich their talent was. Uh, a couple of them, I'm thinking of Fran Kranz in particular, 
seem to have been born not just with talent, but also with technique. Hmm. Now, technique is something you can teach. So I will, I will say to a certain extent, I hoped I taught some of the others, some of the basic techniques that go with good acting. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember one story uh, with, with great affection. It's about Maggie Gyllenhaal, who I think is a, a supremely gifted actor. Yeah. Maggie was playing Ma Jode in The Grapes of Wrath. And Ma Jode is clearly a person much older than 18 years old. She is a woman who has been weighted down with care and, and turmoil and death and lots of things that she has to carry around as baggage. And Maggie was doing a splendid job, but there was something missing, and she knew it as well. And she and I talked about it. And I honestly can't remember whether it was her idea or mine. doesn't matter. But she ended up rehearsing with 10-pound weights tied around her ankles huh. and her wrists in order to give her character posture, posture yeah. and yeah. depth. And it, it really, really worked. Now, that's a kind of a cheap trick in a way. And you have to be a really good actor to know what to do with the trick. But Maggie, Maggie absolutely did. And a story that Jake tells to this day about himself and I think here was a valuable lesson. Uh, Jake came to auditions his senior year unprepared and, frankly, acting a bit entitled. Because he had already been in some films he'd been before in, He'd that. been in some films and he'd been in a lot of shows and he was considered by everybody pretty much on campus as our leading guy. Yeah. And I didn't cast him. You didn't cast I didn't Jake Gyllenhaal. Cast, I did not cast Jake Gyllenhaal yeah. because he – took it for granted that yeah. he would be cast. He did not come prepared or on time to his auditions. And uh, bless Jake, to this day, I heard him recently tell it to an interview, I think, in Boston uh, when he was doing the film about the um, the man who lost his legs. In the marathon. In the marathon. Yeah. He, he talked about that lesson, that it was a good lesson that he learned at that time when he was a, a, a rather entitled young man. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, and, and, and. I could go on and on. Yeah. Uh, but mostly, it's a, it, I think one has to think of working with actors just as one thinks of working with students as a collaboration, not as even teacher or student. You, you, find, a, you find a common ground that you share. You treat the person that you're working with as an adult. Yeah. Uh, obviously, they're not, but you still, you, you still try to, to honor their personhood at that moment and then see where you go from there. Yeah. So that's, that's if I have a philosophy of teaching, that's it. But I think, you know, it, with take the Maggie and the Jake examples, on one hand, you're, you're getting out of the way. With mm -hmm. Maggie, you got out of the way and said, mm -hmm. oh, let's try the weights on the ankles and mm -hmm. see how this goes. And I don't want to get in the way. But with Jake, you knew that you, yeah. you did have to actually. I, yep, yep. And so I think maybe part of being a good teacher and not to disagree with you uh, is sometimes to know when to kind of go, eh, this person might need a lesson. Well, actually, you, right? make, you make a really good point. Uh, the truth of the matter is, is that in any teaching or directing experience, you, you, you have to take it moment for moment yeah. and incident by incident. What worked yesterday for one kid might not work the next day for another kid. Uh, you have to feel the moment, have to feel where that kid is is how far that kid is ready to to meet you and uh, yeah. 
or how far you have to go to meet that kid yeah. and, and find that balance. It's, it's all about finding out who they really are and what the possibilities are that they might not even have thought about themselves. I mean, that's, that's what's really exciting in performance. When, yeah. when, I mean, I'll never forget and to this day, and I'll say this probably till the day I die, the finest performance I have ever seen by a student actor, bar none, in my experience, mm-hmm. was Fran Kranz as King Lear. Yeah. Now, there's no reason in the world that an 18-year-old should play King Lear. <laughs> uh, in fact, it's an absurdity particularly in a performance or in a production that lasted three hours and 45 minutes. Yeah. That's asking a lot of everybody involved. But to this day, it is my proudest moment because of what particularly Fran Kranz brought to the table. And it was just the absurd assumption that he had the talent to do this, that he also didn't yet know what he couldn't do so he just did it <laughs> and and he went there and it, we didn't try to hide the fact that he was 18 years old yeah. in fact we almost exploited the fact but what you got was the possibility of age and 18ness hmm. together looking at each other it was a moment i'll never forget uh, mark platt one of our parents and one of our uh, best dads around yeah has said to this day, he said, I've seen a lot of King Lears, but I've never seen a better King Lear than the one Fran wow. Kranz performed. And and it's true. Wow. It's really true. I, I still look on it as as and I I honestly don't know, Eli, about how how I came about directing that play the way I did. I've I felt every rehearsal that I was just gathering these people together and they were doing their thing. And and I just kind of marveled at what they were doing. Now, I'm sure I did manipulate massage and get things going the way they were supposed to go in rehearsal. Yeah. But basically, I just got out of the way. In fact, there were three enormously talented kids who wanted to do sound and music for the piece. And I just let them go. And they came up with... Daniela Gesundheit and, oh God, Matt and Kevin, those are names I can't quite remember their last names. Okay, yeah. They came together. They invented ancient instruments, the ancient-like instruments to bring to the sound. It was, and it was live throughout wow. the whole show. And this was around 99, 2000? 99. Like this, right? 99. Yeah. Wow. My God, 20 years ago. Ted, where did you grow up? Where were you born? I was born in Sedalia, Missouri. On January 31st, 1942. Okay. And Sedalia, Missouri is a town of about 19,000 in huh. the heartland of Missouri. Notice how I pronounce the name of the state. Missouri. Uh, yeah. Yes. Rural Missourians tend to say Missouri. Okay. And urban Missourians tend to say Missouri. Uh, if you want to locate Sedalia on the map, it is about 200 miles west of St. Louis on a pretty direct line and about 80 miles east of Kansas City, again on that same line. And about thirty miles north of the of the top edge of the Ozarks. Got it. And okay. what 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 did your parents do? What was their? My business? dad was a traveling salesman for the Wichita flour mills. He was the son of German immigrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did not go to college. My mother was about as old line wasp as you can <laughs> as you can get. Uh, I think her people came here a few years after the Mayflower. Uh, one of her ancestors gave the land on which Yale is located, really? and she was a Stanford graduate. So huh. we, we have a 
young woman graduating from Stanford in the late 20s, which was very unusual. Sure. Marrying uh, my dad, the kind of wonderfully charming uh, son of German immigrants. It was a great marriage. And how did they meet? Where did they meet? Uh, they met socially in Sedalia. Now, it's not too difficult to meet socially in Sedalia. <laughs> only 19,000. Only 19, you, yeah. you, you know, the young people are going to meet. Yeah. I actually don't know precisely at what event they met. Got it. Now, there was some sadness because after they had their four children, and I'm the youngest of the four boys, uh -huh. Uh -huh. my mother died of cancer when I was four. So I actually uh -huh. did not know my mother. Uh -huh. uh, and there's a whole story about that. But uh, my dad pretty much raised his four boys by himself. Ah. Uh, I think he did a pretty good job. Yeah. And, you know, I learned a lot from my dad about teaching. Basically, he left us alone. Huh. Now, we knew we were loved. We knew we were safe. We knew what time dinner was going to be served. We knew we had to get home by a certain time. Yeah. But other than that, our dad trusted us to find out on our own who we were. Hmm. We knew there were some limits, yeah, but they were pretty generous limits. Hmm. And I, th I think of all those lessons that my dad implicitly and explicitly taught me uh, every day that I teach. Honestly, I do. Hmm. You, you've got to let the kid find out her or his self. Yeah. You, you, can't, you can't just keep telling them what to do and what to think. Right. And my dad simply did not do that. Hmm. And what was your schooling like there? I went to public, public school. Local public uh, school. One of the things that I still marvel at is that my class, my high school class at Smith Cotton High School, Sedalia, Missouri, hmm. a very conservative community, integrated the same year that Orville Faubus blocked the doors of Central High School in Arkansas. Ah. We did it without fuss or bother. Huh. We, and we all marvel at it. We, we, I have, we have reunions very often. Oh, really? And, and uh, wow. even to this day. And we always marvel at how we just did that without, without fuss. Meanwhile, nationally, it was such a big deal and such a heartbreaking thing that happened. Has that sense of inclusiveness remained mm. with that group of Yes, certainly within my class it absolutely has. Wow. Uh, whether the liberal instincts that were uh, working at the time of that event are still operative in my hometown is a little hard to say to this day. Got it. Were there teachers or people yes. uh, it, it, yes. at your school that either were leaders in that regard, either demonstrated a value of inclusion or... Wow, that's a great question. You know, no and yes, okay. because I can't remember any of them specifically talking about, even talking about it. We, we just did it. We just did it. We just did it. So, but there was no teacher that you recall no, standing like, at the door no, and blocking no, the door. No, no, uh, I, I can say two teachers that I will remember forever. One, yeah. because she wasn't a good teacher and I will leave her name out of it, but I was in the fifth grade and and she mocked kids. She mm. uh, she pointed out their weaknesses in front of everyone else. Mm. Uh, I remember when a girl was giving a book report in fifth grade, and she wet her pants in front of the classroom. And of course, we all laughed, mm. and she did 
nothing. Wow. The teacher did nothing. Ugh. And the child fled the classroom in tears, and the teacher just went on with the class. Wow. And several years ago, I had lunch with that kid. Really? I hadn't seen her in 55, 60 years. And I bet she remembers that moment. That's the thing she remembers. That is the thing she remembers. And and, and furthermore, she remembers it because she was one of only 19 Jewish families in a town of 19,000. Wow. And she always felt discriminated against in that regard. it was so a very the, moving time I had with her. It's a great example. It's the power of a teacher. Yeah. When something oh. like that happens, we, you know, in this, this series of conversations, supporting cast, we're mostly talking about, about great teachers <laughs> and positive influences, but that demonstrates the power that a teacher has in that moment to really make a difference and right. really show leadership and compassion and empathy. And when they don't, correct. gosh, the... On the other hand, the other hand, my Latin teacher, yes. what, I don't know what it is about classics teachers, <laughs> but they always tend to be great teachers yeah. and great, John Corsello, right? right. John our, our Corsello John. Uh, or great characters. Yeah. And uh, John Corsello would be both. Yeah. Uh, John Allen taught me Latin for five years. My high school began in eighth grade. Don't ask. High school, elementary school was grades kindergarten through seven. High school was eight through 12. We didn't fuss around with anything like middle school. Got it. That's changed now. <laughs> anyway, John Allen was my Latin teacher. He looked like Ichabod Crane. He was a very strange, rather shy man. Uh, He lived on a farm with his wife, but we never were at his farm nor met his wife, but we heard a lot about her. Uh, He didn't have any children. We, I think, were his children. And this is back in the days when you could get away with this in high school. You couldn't anymore because of the whole religion and school thing. Mm-hmm. We would dress in togas mm. at Christmas time and go around the halls serenading in Latin with Christmas carols. <laughs> now, to this day, I can do all of Jingle Bells in Latin. I will spare you. Really? Yeah. That'll be the right. next episode. Right. right. We'll do that. I'll just say it begins with Niwes Glockies Post Puritia Rhesus. Never mind. Wow. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, and he was inspiring teachers so much so that I took a fifth year of Latin with him and I was his only student. Uh, wow. And we were reading Catullus, for God's sakes, and, <laughs> and Cicero and doing some pretty heady stuff. Yeah. And so it was your interest in the subject matter, but it was really, it sounds like it was really him. It was really him. him. It was really him. Yeah. And I learned more about how to write in English and think in English from him in Latin than in any English class I ever took, either in high school or college. Wow. Yeah. He was something special. And so where from there? Where from Missouri? Uh, From Missouri, I went to Kenyon College in Ohio. Now, this is back in the day when college uh, admission was a heck of a lot easier than it is today. Two of my three older brothers had gone to Kenyon. Uh Sadly, my second oldest brother, Chuck, had died in a plane crash at Kenyon. And yeah, he was teaching a fraternity brother how to fly. And we don't know the circumstances, but they were both killed in a pretty fiery crash. I was 14. He was 20 at the time. Ah. In any event, uh, my next brother would have gone to Kenyon as well, but it was so close after Chuck's death that he really felt he he didn't want to be there. Mm. So he went to the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee, Mm -hmm. a college not at all unlike Kenyon. You have to remember that at that time, all those schools, Sewanee and Kenyon, were all male. They are no more all male. Right. Uh, here's how I got into Kenyon. 
I was told by my so-called college counselor at Smith Cotton High School in Sedalia, Missouri, that I qualified for Harvard and I could probably get it. And I went, okay, whatever. (laughs) I I didn't really – that didn't mean a whole lot to me to tell you the truth at the time. And then I got a phone call from the director of admissions at Kenyon. Hmm. This is a true story. He said, would you like to come to Kenyon? And I went, sure. (laughs) He said, would you send me a postcard saying words to that effect? I sent him a postcard saying words to that effect. He sent me an application that took roughly a half an hour to fill out. I filled it out. And for $1,800 a year, I went to Kenya. Uh-huh. And that's exactly how it works now. That's right, right yeah, exactly. That's exactly. That's, we don't need college counselors. Parents, if you're listening, it's <laughs> exactly how it works now. Oh, it was so <laughs> – and it was a great – it was a great place for me. Yeah. I, I thrived You love there. Kenyon. Yeah, I you are lo- a, I loved it. an evangelist. I have to say I didn't Kenyon. like it my freshman year ah. because I was caught short. Uh, as good a high school as Smith Cotton High School was in Sedalia, Missouri, when I got to Kenyon, I was up against a lot of kids who had been better educated than I had been. Mm. I'm not sure they were smarter, but they had been to Pembroke and to Choate and to you name it. And I hadn't. So they knew how to write essays in a way that I didn't quite. So it took me my whole freshman year to really adjust more than adjust. (laughs) My my father pointed out midway through the year that he wasn't paying $1,800 a year for me to get C's and D's. Got it. And since all the courses were year-long courses, I'm proud to say that by the end of the year, I had A's and B's, not not C's and D's. Good for you. Yeah. But my, my father... As generous and, and wonderful as he was, could also be very strict about certain things, and money was one of them. It was like, and eighteen hundred a year back in nineteen fifty nine was a big deal. Of course, right. And what was your major there? And were there English. were there professor? Oh, English. And were there professors yes. that influenced yeah, you? Yeah, there there were. There was one in particular, probably the most important influence on my life. Huh. Um, I majored in English and minored in theater. I would have majored in theater, but it wasn't it wasn't a, a plausible. You you couldn't major in theater. Yeah, there was only one person who taught theater at Kenyon College at the time, and I guess that just doesn't count as a major. Yeah, but I took all the theater courses that there were to take, and I I did major in English, and I got my degree in English, and I did my honors paper in English, and and and, but the man who taught theater uh, gave me the most valuable lessons. Uh, a lesson in my life. Uh, I thought when I got to Kenyon, I was going to be an actor. Uh, and I was convinced based on a couple of performances at Smith Cotton High School that I was a really brilliant actor. Mm-hmm. I was certain I was the next James Dean or whatever. Mm-hmm. I I look back on it now and laugh, but that's okay. And I did get cast as the lead in the first play at Kenyon that year, which was The Seagull by Anton Chekhov, and mm-hmm. I played Treplev. And I thought I was terrific. And after it was over, the director and my teacher, Jim Michael, came up to me, put his arm around me, and he said, Ted, I think you're going to have a career in theater. And I <laughs> smiled broadly, beamed. beamed, and there was a long pause. And then he said, but not as an actor. Huh. And so I was deflated, crushed, 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 absolutely yeah. crushed. He said, so here's what I'm going to do. He said, for every play we do here on out while you're at Kenyon, you're going to have a different job. 
You're going to do lighting. You're going to do costumes. You're going to do scenery. You're going to do stage management. You're going to do props. You're going to do whatever I ask you to do, and you're going to do it to the best of your ability. And I said, well, I don't know anything about how to do costumes. He said, you're just going to give it your best shot. So that's what I did. And at the end of my junior year, he came up to me and said, I think you're a director. Would you like to direct the main stage show next fall? And I went, what? Wow. No student had been asked before, or I might add since, at Kenyon to do this. I directed a main stage show, and I directed Tennessee Williams' Orpheus Descending. I chose it. Wow. Uh, now, that's great teaching. Yeah. So in other words, he he recognized something in me. He didn't quite know what it was, nor did I. Yeah. And he threw me to the wolves, one wolf after another, to, <laughs> to find out what it was. And any any director needs to know something about all the elements of theater, and that's really what he put me through. Yeah. Uh, and ap as a result of that, I uh, got into the Yale School of Drama, which was a pretty big deal yeah. then and now. Uh, what, what's surprising about that is I didn't like the Yale School of oh. Drama, so I dropped out. But oh. that's that's – I think in part it was it had to do with me. It had to do with I was young for my class. I had not taken a break, by the way. This is a good time to advertise gap year. Yeah. I, I believe in gap years. Yeah. Uh, I wish I had taken one and I didn't, but any, any event. So so I went from uh, – after dropping out of Yale after two and a half months and, – and at the time, the Yale Drama School was in the hands of a dying administration. The next year after I left, there was a huge turnover and the thing was revitalized. So I, I, I had some reasons for wanting to drop out. Uh, in any event, I took the rest of that year off. I taught at a boarding school. Uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, okay. or a school that was in part boarding. I had a floor of eighth graders. Don't ask. It, it's <laughs> one of the strangest semesters of my I life bet. as a teacher. Yeah. Uh, eighth graders in a boarding school are a challenge, yeah. shall we say. In any event, uh, after that, I transferred to what was a superb uh, institution for theater at the time, Catholic University in America. They had a great drama program. And where was that? Washington, D.C. Got it. And I loved the two years there, and that's what got me located in Washington, D.C. when I got a job offer when I graduated from uh, Catholic University to teach at St. Albans School right. at the National Cathedral in D.C. I started in 1966 there. Uh, teaching English and theater, mm -hmm. and Tom Hudnut came to teach uh, psychology and history and and uh, to do some uh, deaning work and college admissions work and all that kind of mm -hmm. thing. He came in 1970, ah. and, and we became friends. We lived across the street from each other, two blocks from the campus, often walked to work together. Huh. And and we became friends, which is why I'm sitting here having a podcast with you now. <laughs> because uh, Tom Hudnut has, uh, as he likes to put it, uh, uh, led the way for me mm -hmm. uh, throughout life. Be because Tom has a certain ego, as we all know. He he said, you know, he said, I am the leader. And I say, you're just John the Baptist, just to, <laughs> to you know, prepare the way. We, we both joke about this. So, yeah. yeah. And could you tell at that point that Tom was sort of destined to be a school head yeah, absolutely. as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it was written all over him. It's what he wanted to be. He's fiercely intelligent. 
uh, bold and imaginative, uh, uh, can seize the moments, um, uh, uh, make you know, make shinola out of you know what, as the expression goes. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, it and he wanted to be. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to. He wanted to be a headmaster. Yeah. And uh, he prepared at St. Albans, and then he became a head at uh, a school in suburban D.C., and then he became a head at the Branson School in Northern California, right. which is where I went to work for him Got uh, it. many years later. So you went from St. Albans mm, to— Not quite. No, there was somewhere in between? <laughs> there was somewhere in between. Uh, that was my— that was my foray into professional theater. Ah. You know, I told you I wanted to be in professional theater yeah. all this time. Well— uh, in 1978, Kenyon College, my alma mater, asked me to come uh, take a, a semester's leave of absence from St. Albans School to come to the campus and produce the opening of the theater that they were building. Uh, they wanted to have a big, fancy opening celebration uh, and a production. And I was to produce it and to work with the kids to produce it. And so I did take a leave of absence from St. Albans. I went to Kenyon. And uh, part of the deal was that another alumnus at Kenyon, a fellow named Paul Newman, that hmm. some people have heard of, sure. uh, was to direct the play. And Paul and I together were to find a new play to be done. So we did that. Wow. And we involved a lot of kids. And it was a very, very, very big deal. And out of that experience, I got an offer from Kenyon to produce full-time a professional theater at Kenyon during the summertime mm. using the model of Stratford Festival in Canada uh, as, as our template. So I, I, I went back to St. Albans for another year and a half, took the job at Kenyon for five years running this professional summer. Yeah. summer but I was there full time. It oh, was, I see. Oh, and, and, and I and, and several other staff members. It was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, we raised, was the professor still there? Who he you, was. He was. And he was, he was in that production that wow. we opened, that Paul, and he had also been Paul's teacher. Ah. So Paul and I shared, that's why we were both there. Yeah. Paul and I came together to do that show because of our devotion to Jim Michael, the professor who had changed Paul's life. And told him he should be an actor or no? Well, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> uh, the story goes, and there are various versions of the story, that Paul got kicked off the football team for one too many beers <laughs> and ended up on stage. Uh, uh, and that's pretty true. What I know is true is that Jim Michael did with Paul Newman what he did with me. Mm. He recognized something. He got out of the way and let him do his thing. Got it. That's, that's, that's what happened. That's anyway, Paul and I were there for the same reason. And we cast Jim in a small but important role. Really, in the you play. cast your professor. We in cast the play. our professor, and I have one of my favorite pictures uh, on the wall at home. Is a picture of Paul Newman coaching Jim Michael wow. in a role in this new play that we were doing, and it's a it's a beautiful picture of, in this case, the student mentoring the mentor. Right, uh, and those are moments that you you long for. I think. For me, some of the greatest moments in my life as a teacher yeah. is when my students have taught me something, mm. not when I've taught them something. When, yeah. when I've gone, oh, yes, I see it. In fact, just today, yeah. I mean, literally an hour ago, 
Uh, I asked a former student of mine, Nick Lieberman, yeah. who, who graduated uh, sometime, 2010, I think, yeah. uh, who's worked with me on a number of projects. I asked him if he had some time tomorrow to work with me for a few hours because I'm redoing the syllabus for cinema studies mm-hmm. and I needed a sounding board. And he said, absolutely. So we're, we're, we're doing that tomorrow. And, and then tomorrow afternoon, he's going to spend time with his old buddy, Ben Platt, because uh, they were in the same class. Right. Now, there was a class. And I think Nick directs some of he, Ben's music videos and does. things, right? Is that he right? He does. He does. Yeah. Uh, there's a class, and this is skipping ahead, but that's okay. that class of 2010, in that same class, yeah. often in productions together, you have a group of some of the most talented kids I've ever seen. Yeah. Nick Lieberman, Ben Platt, Catherine Gallagher, right. Max Sheldon, and Beanie Feldstein. Wow. How would you care to guess that three of those people have opened on Broadway yeah. and they were in the same class? Amazing. Catherine Gallagher, by the way, who now is at uh, the Atlantis Morissette. That's right. Um, Jagged Little Pill. Jagged Little Pill. Right. Is on Broadway now. Right. Yeah. And Beanie was in Hello Dolly on yep. Broadway and Ben Platt, as we, we know. all know, with did Dear Evan Hansen. And Max Sheldon's going to be next. He's. Wow. Uh, He's insanely talented, uh, and 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 you know they Ben and he were co-stars in Pippin, uh, one of one of the better musicals. We've I know done we're here. jumping ahead, but could you tell when when that crew yeah. came through? You yeah, could tell that there was something tell. special. You could tell about that group. Uh, now it's always tricky using hindsight, and 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 of course, of course, I'm so smart <laughs> as a teacher and a director. I knew all along. Yeah, but honest to God. Especially, look, I met Beanie Feldstein when I think she was, I don't know, eight or nine years old. I cast her. uh, She was at the Center for Early Education, and I needed a very little kid, even younger than our middle schoolers, for a production of The Sound of Music. Uh And Beanie was recommended to me, and Mm. I met her. And even then, you went, there is something really magical about this kid when she's on stage. And there she was, tiny little Beanie. Yeah. uh, and to this day, I, I, I bear a deep affection uh, for that young woman. She's she's pretty special. Yeah, I, I forgot a name, Natalie Margolin, who is now a very uh, up and coming playwright. Mm. Although she was a terrific actress, she was also part of that same group of kids. Got it. In that same year. Yeah. Yeah. Got yeah. It. So I know we skipped ahead a bit. That's you right. ended up going. You were at Kenyon. I was at Kenyon, and then I was doing. I was doing. The professional theater there mm-hmm. for five years where I worked with uh, everybody from Allison Janney to David Strathern to Chris Cooper to – and I could name all the actors. And wow. I had a wonderful time and I, I – it was my fantasy come true uh, because there I was riding around on Learjets with Paul Newman and, and leading that sexy life that you, you thought this was all about. Yeah. But, uh, but here comes something that I certainly don't mind talking about. At the same time, I – uh, was practicing uh, a, a drug and alcohol addiction that got increasingly worse. Mm. And I was fueling something with that addiction. Uh, and it really, when, when uh, in the fifth year that I was at Kenyon Festival Theater, as it was called, yeah. uh, I got a call from Tom Hudnut asking if I would consider coming to the school he was running in Northern California to do something with their theater program, which he thought needed some some something done for it. Yeah. 
something in me when I went to visit said I needed to do this. To be in that environment? I needed to be in that environment also uh, that I really missed teaching, mm. deeply missed it. And I'm happy to say that a year after I got there, uh, I discovered, if you will, or however you want to put it, I discovered sobriety mm. and 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 put aside the addictions that I had. And uh, so I'm now 35 years sober. Wow. So that's congratulations. Nice. Thank you. Were there people who helped you through that? Sure. Tom Hudnut was yeah. one by saying either you, you you do something about this or you're fired. Right. Uh, In only the way I could hear Tom saying right, that. That's right. Uh, and as well, he should have. Uh, but what really helped me through it is an organization called AA. Oh, I see. AA, yeah. AA saved my life. Yeah. Uh, I, I have, and I have then, good friends who's yeah, And then that people. same year, my first year of sobriety, this was a time when drugs were really big time in the Bay Area. So I had a lot of kids who were struggling uh -huh. with addiction. Working with them to help with their addictions also helped me uh -huh. work with my addiction. Uh -huh. So that was so kids played a huge role in my recovery in that regard. Got it. Yeah. So then Tom comes to Harvard School in the late eighties. That's correct. After and he and I had four years together at the Branson School. Uh-huh. He comes to the then Harvard School and and he starts after me to come down here. Uh, and, in, and in one of his memorable phrases, because I kept saying no, because I was very happy where I was. Yeah. Uh, very happy. I love my job. Yeah. Uh, I love the school. I love the kids. I love living in the Bay Area. And I could go on and on and on. But Tom was persistent. And, and finally, in one of his memorable phrases, he said, you are languishing in spite of blandishments. Now, for those of you who don't, that, that just means- I'm lost. That just means- <laughs> You're lost too, don't you're worry. You're not paying attention to my invitations. That, uh, that's what he means. Uh, and, he, and he finally gave me one last chance. And I, and I was very clear that I wasn't interested in coming here until we were co-ed. Uh, uh, I, I, I certainly wasn't interested. He wanted me to do something with the theater program. And I wasn't interested in doing something with the theater program if it were all male, because yeah. that's just that's just no fun. Yeah, you, you, you need you need you need both genders uh, uh, to to have that happen. Yeah. So uh, when it, it, it so I came the year of the merger of the merger. Yeah. I am I am not as I like to say a vestigial virgin. That's a that's a pun on vestal virgin for you classicists. Uh, <laughs> so I represent neither Harvard nor Westlake. I am. I am Harvard Westlake. Got it. Uh, and I so I lived through those first two or three years when there were, there were a lot of people still plying the Harvard trade and a lot of people still plying sure. the Westlake trade. Yep. And I was like, hey, I'm I'm fine. <laughs> I'm I'm just a Harvard Westlake kid. You're the peacekeeper. I'm yeah. a peacekeeper. No. And what has kept you? This has been your longest tenured. It has role and yeah, in I did school? I did uh, thirteen years at St Albans, five mm. years at Kenyon. Uh, and uh, eight years at the Branson School, and now 30 years. Wow. This is my 30th year coming up. What has kept you here all that A, time? Very simple. It's primarily the students, yeah. but close after that is the faculty. Yeah. And the reason finally that I accepted Tom's invitation and stopped languishing in spite of blandishments <laughs> was that... I knew that here I would be in, in what is a very big game. At the Branson School in Northern California, which is a great school, yeah. 
I was beautiful campus. I've been there. Oh my, I, I loved it. But I was a I was a pretty big fish in a pretty small pond, and here, the challenge is every day because you're with the best faculty going and these enorm these enormously bright and interesting kids, and there are a lot of them. Yeah, this school is four times as big, five right. times as big as Branson. Uh, you just feel challenged here. You you don't you don't feel that you can just sort of kick back and accept your laurels and go, hey, you yeah. know, this is uh, uh, this is no. I I still feel every day in the classroom that if I if I'm not bringing my best game, then I I need to be ashamed of myself. Yeah, I feel that strongly. So Ted, you had one more thing you wanted to add. Yes, I I do want to add this, and it's not really add it. It's it's something that's very important to say. Nothing is means more to me at my time here than the kids that I've worked with, and there are two other actors that I was thinking about as we were talking that deserve special mention. One of them is a young man named Mike Crane who has made a good, steady career for himself in New York, and. He's, he's what we call a working actor. Yeah. Is he a superstar? No, but he's a working actor and he's doing very well doing that. Meanwhile, he has a wife and two kids. He's building a family. He's a wonderful guy. Yeah. And he worked with an actor named Jessica Capshaw, who was one of my very favorites in my early years here. They loved working together. They became great friends. And she made a terrific career for herself on television, yeah. uh, particularly... Uh, in Grey's Anatomy. And again, here it is, a good working actor who who builds a family, as Jessica has. Mm -hmm. And that means a lot to me. And yeah. I've kept in close touch with both of those actors and with a good many others I'm sure I've not mentioned. So to, to finish off, Ted, yes. I wanted to ask a few questions. We've been doing... Uh kind of three three kind of standard questions relating to Los Angeles. Los Angeles mm. is known for film, for food, mm. and for climate. And this is an important, this is one people will be paying attention to. And I think I might know the answer. Ted Walsh, what is your favorite film? What's your favorite movie of all time? 2001, A Space Odyssey ah. by Stanley Kubrick with a close second to the 400 Blows was, by I, Francois Truffaut. I thought it was going to be 400 Blows, yeah. That I've written a book about, but we're, we'll talk about that another time. Yeah. And Ituma uh, Matambien by Alfonso Cuaron. Ah. Those, are, those would be my two close seconds. And why 2001 Space Odyssey? Because it's, the, it's a film that you can only imagine as a film. You can't imagine it as a poem or a painting or a play. It, it is the essence of film. Mm. And it moves me on a level that I still don't understand and so I keep going back to it, hoping, by the way, part of my cinema studies curriculum, thanks to generous supporters in our family, mm -hmm. we now go, the, all my students in cinema studies and in philosophy, we mm -hmm. go to the Cinerama Dome on, at 10 o'clock in the morning uh -huh. for a private screening of 2001 right? Space Odyssey. And we pay nothing for this. Wow. This donated by Arclight and by Warner Brothers. Wow. And Chris Foreman, I think, is our Chris our Foreman at, at does Arclight, it Arclight and Alan Horn made the Warner Brothers connection Alan possible. Horn. So wonderful. It's, it's and they refuse to charge this. I said, let me at least pay the projectionist. And they say, Nope. We wow. just think it's cool. <laughs> now I will say that they do a brisk business at the concession stand. <laughs> so that, that helps a little bit. That helps, especially right. ten AM. Ten AM. And, and right. as as Chris said, we're not really open at 10 a.m., so <laughs> right. it's, it's, there, there's, a, there's an upside. Exactly. Right. Um, what's your favorite meal 
in Los Angeles. Uh, it's pretty, it's pretty pedestrian. But I, I, my absolute favorite thing in in Los Angeles is a hamburger at the counter. Ah, I think it's the best hamburger going. Now I, deep down inside, I'm as happy with a hamburger and French fries as I am with you know. Caviar a, and a caviar and a salmon uh, ice cream cone, as good as all that is. Yeah. Uh, no, and I'm not. To, yeah. Uh, counter burger. The, a counter burger uh, makes me very happy. Got it. Okay. What's your favorite place in Los Angeles? ArcLight Hollywood. ArcLight Hollywood in the Cinerama Dome, or just no? Not actually. I don't the much like the Cinerama uh, Dome except to see movies that are meant to be seen in the Cinerama Dome. Got it. I just like the regular. Arclight Hollywood. I like their little cafe. Mm-hmm. I like their theaters. They give a space for West Flicks, but I just, I'm very happy at Arclight Hollywood. Got it. I'm also, I have a dear, dear friend who is a member at the Bel Air Bay Club, and I like going to the Bel Air Bay Club for Saturday morning breakfast mm. and just because it's right on the oh, ocean. Beautiful. Yeah, it's right Those on the big ocean. Windows and... Yeah, and it's not it's not like they're not beach chairs between you. It's right there. Yeah, You're just right on there. the water. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not a member, nor could I afford to be, but <laughs> but nor have they asked me. <laughs> but but I did celebrate my 70th birthday there with a hundred uh-huh. hundred good friends, and and that was a very special thing for me. Got it. Last question. You've worked at Harvard Westlake a long time. You worked in independent schools a long time. Yes. You've worked around a lot of parents. And I know when people stereotype Harvard Westlake parents yeah. or, or independent school parents, it's these crazy yeah. parents who are overly this and overly that. You've also worked with some terrific parents. Yes. What are the qualities that you have found? This is a parent. I'm a, I'm a new parent as of a couple of years ago, and so I'm always looking for advice. What are the qualities you've seen in great parents with whom you've worked, and and I think by way of those, probably producing great kids. Right. But what have you seen? Uh, uh, I'm going to go back to my dad hmm. because the great parents are the ones that give their kids room to be who they are, hmm. and do not have a set of plans that have to be followed. Hmm. Uh, it's. Kids are going to be who they are, and you just you have to get out of the way. You have to give them love and support, and let them know that they're safe, and let them know that you're there. You're there for them, but you you have to let them roam and become the the person that they are. The greatest parents I've seen here, and I'll not specify anybody by name mm-hmm. or by even, but but I will by example, are those who suddenly realized that their kid wasn't even close to what they thought that kid was going to be and went, oh, that's who you are. Wow, that's exciting. Even if somewhere deep inside they were disappointed because it hadn't met their plans. Yeah. Kids are not going to meet your plans, folks. Yeah. Kids are going to be who they are. And and you've got to support them in that celebration of self-discovery. That, and that's what I believe as a teacher. Well, thank you for doing that as a teacher. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, thank you for all of the work you've done on behalf of Harvard-Westlake and the way you've impacted and influenced so many kids. It's fun talking to so you. And I, and I love this school. It's a very special place. Thank you, Clyde. All right. Thank you. This is the supporting cast. Thank you.